The sermon text is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, and you can find that on page 568. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is the word of the Lord. So we got some seats up here in the front row, if any of you back row standers want them. But then I think there's a few opening up around. Uh, Okay. Well, uh, the other day, uh, Melissa and I were speaking to a bouncer. um, And... uh, (laughs) You know, we were in trouble, I don't know. No, uh, he was a bouncer at, at, a, at a local restaurant, and uh, we were uh, talking to him because he had a, a bunch of interesting tattoos. He had, a, you know, sleeve tattoos. He had them kind of going up around his neck, and uh, Melissa was interested in one in particular uh, because on the back of his neck, he had this tattoo that said, Lord knows. So she asked him, you know, what is that, what, what's that one all about? And um, he opened up uh, to say, well, you know, I've... Uh, got a pretty successful life, you know, he was uh, a personal trainer, and he had, a, this was just like his, his part-time job, and he said, you know, people look at the outside, and they see me, and they perceive me as somebody who's kind of gotten, gotten it together, that's doing pretty well. He's like, but I have that tattoo, because it's a reminder that even though no one else knows what I've been through, the Lord knows uh, what I've experienced. He knows the hardship that I've gone through in my life. And then he pulled up one of his sleeves and he showed us that his arm was just covered in tombstones. And the tombstones had names on them. And he said that these are just some of the names of the people, of my friends who have died. He told us that he grew up uh, in one of the low-income housing communities, actually not too far from here, just down the street. And he said that all of his life, his friends were lost to gang violence. That... There is a war going on between the, the place he grew up in and the one across the street that started long before anyone can remember and that it goes on still today to this very moment. Even to the point that this week, some, a young man was killed in front of his mother who had nothing to do with any of it. He just was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And as we were listening to the story, Melissa asked him, well, what do you think it would take for there to be peace in that community? What do you think it would take for peace to come into that situation? And without even thinking about it, this man responded, I don't think there will ever be peace there. I don't think peace is is possible. He said, this is what happens all over our city. This is what happens in every city all over our country. This is what's happening all around the world. He said, the history is too deep. It'll never stop. There there will never be peace. And as he told me that, I found myself sadly agreeing with him. 
I found myself feeling overwhelmed, thinking, yeah, that is how it is. Sometimes the problems in this world, they, they seem too big. Sometimes the divisions, they seem too great. But after having that conversation, I came back to this word. And I sat down in front of this text, and I was reminded of the great promise that we have in Christ. That despite all of the odds, peace has been guaranteed to us in Jesus. When we started preaching the book of Ephesians uh, a few weeks ago, we said that the whole point of this book can be summarized in chapter 1, verse 10. The whole point of this book boils down to this great mystery that God has revealed to us that in the fullness of time, He intends to unite all things in heaven and all things on earth in Jesus Christ. And so today, we get to this passage in Ephesians 2 that shows us just how that's going to take place. It shows us just how that peace has begun and how we might experience a bit of that peace even today in this busted, in this broken, in this sometimes hopeless-seeming world, how we can experience that peace now. And so that's where I want us to go this morning. I want us to look at our peace. I want us to see the source of our peace, the depth of our peace, and the challenge of our peace. So let's do that. The source of our peace. Uh, as I was reflecting on it, the reason why that man could never imagine peace, and the reason why at the moment I couldn't imagine peace either, is because usually when we think of peace, we are thinking about some kind of plan. We are thinking about some kind of policy or some set of rules that's going to bring an end to conflict. Maybe it's a negotiation between two parties where they finally come to terms that they can both abide by. Or maybe it's, it's a complete surrender where one party is utterly conquered and they just have to give up. Or, or when we think of peace, sometimes we just hope that there will be some kind of authority that will come down and lay down the law and say, these are the rules you have to live by to stop the striving. But when we think of peace, we are mostly trying to imagine the terms that will bring an end to hostility. But according to this text, according to Ephesians chapter 2, all of that stuff, all of that negotiation and surrender and, and, and law-giving, all of that stuff is less than real peace. All of that stuff is different from the peace that Paul is telling us rests at the center of the gospel. Now, if you're a skeptic here in this room, maybe you're thinking, well, I don't know if you're the best authority to speak on this. <laughs> I don't know if the church is the best authority on how to find peace. Isn't Christianity itself responsible for some of the greatest atrocities in history? Aren't Christians responsible for some horrible things? And, and it's true, they are. There's, there's no denying that if you look in the pages of history, you will see that the church and, and people acting on behalf of their Christian faith have, have done some bad things in the name of their religion. Uh, but I just want to encourage you. Uh, if 
we were, you know, we don't have time to do this, but if we were to go back to each one of those situations, I am certain that what we would find, whether it's the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition or, or Timothy McVeigh bombing Oklahoma City, I'm certain that if we would go back, what we would find is that those people and those churches were using religion to justify something else. They were using religion to, to justify their policies and their plans, whether it was forcing people to obey their rules or conquering another nation. What they were doing was exactly what the world does and exactly the opposite of what Scripture teaches. That's not the gospel at all. And, and people who use Scripture to justify policies of violence and oppression, they just don't understand what the gospel is. And so here, in Ephesians, Paul tells us. Here in Ephesians, Paul tells us that peace is not a plan. Peace is not the result of some negotiation. But peace, in fact, is a person. Verse 14, it says, He himself, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul tells us that the person of Christ is our peace. First, he is the peace in our rift with God. And secondly, he is the peace in our rift with one another. Well, how does that work? How can a person be peace? How can Christ be our peace? Well, to understand that, you've got to realize, first of all, that, that Scripture tells us the reason why peace cannot be achieved by following just some set of rules is because our problems are much bigger. Our problems are much bigger than just disagreements. Our problems are bigger than differing opinions. The problem of our division actually goes down to the very core of who we are. The problem of our division all traces back to sin. Scripture tells us that our deepest instinct is sin, and our sin expresses itself in pride. It expresses itself in, in envy, in a lust for success or power or glory. Our sin expresses itself in just a basic self-concern that we are all concerned more about ourselves than we are concerned about anyone else. And that sin separates us. It separates us from each other. And ultimately, and most importantly, that sin separates us forever from God. So in our passage, Paul, he uses this term. He says, the dividing wall of hostility. That's a pretty vivid picture, right? Guys, go ahead and say it with me. The dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility. <laughs> all right, good. You're all awake. Um, it's a pretty vivid picture. A, a hostile wall. It kind of reminds you of, of somebody slamming a door in your face or something. It's this barrier that, that you are completely aware of, but not just the fact that the barrier is there, but you're, you're aware of the wrath that put it there. What is it, though? What is that wall that Paul is talking about, this dividing wall of hostility? Well, it says it right here. 
It's the law. He says, He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He says this, the dividing wall, the thing that's dividing us is the Ten Commandments. It's the rules for sacrifices. It's God's holy standard that has built this impenetrable fortress, this standard of perfection that none of us can live up to. It's a standard that says, in order to be with God, you must be perfect. And Paul, he uses the language of a wall because he's comparing it to the temple. He's comparing it to the temple that was in Jerusalem during that time. Do you remember that? Steve actually mentioned it last week when he was preaching, that in Jerusalem there was the temple that stood at the center of the worship of Israel. And in that temple there was a big outer courtyard. And that courtyard was, was the, the court of the Gentiles. But beyond that courtyard was a huge wall that set around the entrance to the main part of the temple. And within that wall was another court. And that was called the court of the women. Women could not go any further because there was another wall, and inside of that wall was called the court of Israel. That smaller court was only available for the men of Israel to, to worship. And then beyond that was another wall and the court of the priests. So only a few select men were allowed to enter into this inner court for priests. But then at the center of that was a veil that stood around an area called the Holy of Holies that represented the very presence of God. And no one could pass through that veil. The only time people were allowed to go through the veil into the Holy of Holies was once a year. Once a year, every year, the high priest would prepare themselves and go into the Holy of Holies with a sacrifice. Through that sacrifice, he would pay for the sins of the people of Israel. He would atone for, for their sins. The veil was a reminder that no one could stand in the presence of a holy and perfect God. No matter how far into the court they got, no one could stand in God's presence. In other words, that wall that Paul is telling us about, this wall of hostility, it's not a door that God has slammed in our faces. But in fact, it is a wall that we have built. It's a wall that we have built through our rejection of Him. Through our rebellion against His law. It's a, it's a wall that reminds us that God cannot be in our presence because sin dwells so deeply inside of us. And if that's the case, if we are really rotten to the core like that, then of course there, there's no plan for peace. No matter how much we might stick to a certain set of rules, no matter how well we might behave, there is nothing that we can do that can undo our hearts. We can't achieve peace. But the good news of the Gospel is that from the beginning of time, God had a plan to redeem His people. And He first hinted at that plan with a promise to Abraham. When he called him and he said, I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation and the whole world is going to be blessed 
through you, through your descendants. And of course, that that came to fruition. That came to pass when ultimately Jesus Christ came from his line. The Son of God came and he went to the cross. Hebrews in the New Testament puts meaning on that for us. The author tells us that on the cross, Jesus went into the Holy of Holies. On the cross, Jesus went into that most sacred place and He became the sacrifice for us once for all, forever. That Jesus paid for our sins with His blood. That in that moment, Jesus took the hostility of God due to us for our sins and He took it on Himself forever. And so that means when we talk about peace, When we talk about the peace we have with God, it is not a policy. It is not a set of rules to live by. It is not a a set of commands to coerce people into following. The peace of the gospel is Christ Himself. The peace of the gospel is, is a true reconciliation, it's not a truce. It's not a ceasefire. It is the the promise that all of God's hostility has been removed and replaced with love and welcome and friendship. He has called us into His family. It's not a peace that's based on performance. It's not a peace that's based on our actions. It's not a peace that's based on something we deserve. It's not a peace that's based on anything. Christ Himself is our peace. That's what it means. Now let's talk about the implications of that. If that's the source of our peace, what does that mean for us today? Just how far-reaching is this peace? So I want to look at that for a second. The second thing I want to talk about is the depth of our peace. Okay, so I know some of us were here last week, uh, but if you don't remember, this paragraph started with Paul speaking to the Gentiles. So Paul was speaking to everyone in the church who was not Jewish. He says in verse 12, remember, remember that you were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He starts out by saying, remember where you were. Remember this great distance that used to exist. He, in a sense, is saying, Remember those walls that we were just talking about that stood around the temple? He's saying there's a good reason for that wall between the Gentiles and the Jews. There is a good reason why that's the biggest wall of all. It's because you Gentiles have no expectation. You have no right to assume that God is going to save you. You had no right to believe that Yahweh was going to be your Redeemer. But now, you who are far off, have been brought near. So he opens up the paragraph with this, you, 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 this is what's happened to you. 
But now, in our passage, he changes a little bit. He says, Christ is our peace. Christ is our peace. He says that for both you Gentiles and we Jewish leaders, we Jewish people, we obedient Jews, for both of us, our hope of salvation is the same. Christ is our peace. So we need to slow down here and think about this for a minute. I want to make sure you you get what Paul is trying to communicate. I want to make sure you understand what we're saying here. Paul is, is not saying that Jesus was first the, the salvation for the Jews in one way, and now Jesus has become the salvation for the Jews in some other way. He's not saying that God had one, one plan that re- would result in the Jews being saved through Jesus, but then he also figured out a way to kind of squeeze in the Gentiles in some other plan that ends with Jesus. Paul wants to make sure you know that. He wants to make sure that we recognize there's only one salvation. That this is not some kind of Jim Crow salvation. That there is no separate but equal salvation. But there is one salvation. That when Christ broke down that inner wall, when Christ broke down the veil between the Holy of Holies, when He broke down the barrier between God and man, He broke down all the other walls as well. Listen to what He says. He has made us both one. That He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two. That He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. He says we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. He's telling us that the peace of the Gospel is bigger than we think. The peace of the gospel is is more than a once divided people who were separated by walls and now we're free to intermingle. The gospel's bigger than that. The gospel's bigger than people who were once enemies are now friends. The gospel's bigger than that. He tells us that the gospel is that people who were once hostile to one another, have become one with each other. And it doesn't just apply to Jews and Gentiles. In other passages, Paul makes it very clear that this applies to every division that we have on earth. Colossians 3, he says, There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. Galatians 3, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you understand? He's telling us that in Christ's church, there are no barriers. There there is no racial divide. There is no Jew, Greek, black, white, Asian, Latino There is no wealth divide. There is no rich or poor or middle class. There is no political divide. There is no liberal. There is no conservative. There is no relational divide. There is no married and there is no single. 
There's no educational divide. There's no PhDs or master's degrees or high school dropouts. He says, we all stand before God on equal footing. Paul says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings and you are heirs according to the promise. That's the promise of the gospel. Not just the removal of barriers, but that all of us become one in Him. Here. Right here. That's supposed to happen here. In the church. In this body. We are supposed to experience that right now. Peace with God and unity with each other. That is the depth of peace that comes from Christ alone. But you know, it's not easy. In fact, it's really hard. And we need to talk about that. We need to be honest about that. Let's, let's take a minute here and, and talk about the challenges of this kind of peace. First off, I, I want to be clear. When I am saying that Christ brings us all into the church and makes us one, I am not saying that Christ removes all of our distinctions. We don't come, become some homogenous pile of people. He doesn't remove our, our distinctions. In fact, Scripture tells us it's just the opposite. That the diversity in the church is actually the glory of the church. If you pick up a Bible and you read through it and you get to the book of Revelation, John has a vision of what the church looks like in all its glory. And he says it's a vision of every tongue and tribe and nation standing around the throne, worshiping together. And maybe you haven't thought about it before, but you realize he can tell the people apart. Those cultures and those races are visible. They're distinct. And that's what makes it so glorious. When we come to Jesus, we don't lose who we are. We don't lose our identity, but instead we actually gain a common identity. We gain this larger identity that is actually big enough to hold all of our differences inside of it. That's the glory of the church. The glory of the church is this one people is created of many nations and languages and cultures and classes. And I know when I talk about that, when I bring up diversity, it's kind of like preaching to the choir here, right? We like that idea. I mean, this is Boston. We are very excited about diversity. Even in our, our neighborhood, you know, we have parades to celebrate it. We, we love the idea. But I want to bring us back to reality a little bit here. Because as attractive as that sounds, as beautiful as that picture may seem, the, the daily reality of that is very hard. And Paul knew that. Paul knew that this vision that he was casting is just that. It was a vision. It was a vision of what God was only beginning to do at this point in history. He talked about those walls being broken down. That's his big illustration the dividing walls falling. But do you know, when he wrote this, those walls still stood. That temple was still there. 
And that tension between Jew and Gentile was very real. It was real on the streets, and it was real in the church. In fact, Paul, you find in the book of Galatians, he got into fights about this stuff. He got into a fight with Peter himself, one of Jesus' closest disciples, because Peter was, was trying to, to keep Jews and Gentiles separate by the way he lived. Even though Christ has done this great work for us, even though in a cosmic sense, Christ has torn down all the barriers that stand between us and the church, our differences are real. And sin is real. Sin still dwells in us. And I think one of the challenges that this passage has to leave us with, especially, you know, Christians, I'm talking to you here. We as Christians, we need to learn to pursue unity within the church. We need to learn to pursue unity between one another with the same passion that we pursue our unity with God. With the same passion that we pursue our personal holiness. Right? And what I mean by that is, in the same way that you can't just face one of your sins, in the same way you can't just say, well, you know, I know I shouldn't watch pornography, but, you know, I'm going to keep doing it. Because I know that, that someday Jesus is going to come back and he's going to fix it and I won't struggle with it anymore. Right? No Christian would say that. No Christian would just be content to live with sin. Well, in the same way, we can't say, well, the church, it shouldn't be divided by race and class. It shouldn't be divided, but, you know, it's always been that way. One day Jesus is going to come back and fix it. So until then, I'm just content to wait. But that's exactly what we do. No, we can't do that. We can't possibly read this passage and come away thinking there is any excuse for us to leave up barriers which Christ has torn down. We have to do everything in our power to love our neighbors. And especially our neighbors that are most difficult for us to relate to. This is a call for us to open ourselves up to a little bit of discomfort. To open ourselves up to not doing things in the way that are most comfortable for us. Right? Peter had to learn to start eating pork. <laughs> Peter had to learn to hang out with some Gentiles and go hang out in their houses that he had always been told were unclean. And we need to learn to do some things we don't like. We need to learn to sing some songs that we don't love. We need to learn to take our kids to the playgrounds on the other side of the neighborhood. If you're one of those people here who only hangs out in coffee shops, maybe you need to go hang out on the street corner. And if you only hang out on the street corner, maybe you should go hang out in the coffee shop. We need to learn to be learners. We need to, to be humble. We need to, to enter situations and recognize that just because we know Jesus doesn't mean we know everything. And you know what else? You know, as long as I'm listing stuff we need to do, folks, we need to learn to clap. 
<laughs> you know, this icy Presbyterian thing we got going on, we need to thaw out a little bit. We need to loosen up here. There's lots of stuff. <laughs> the truth is, I could list things all day. There are a thousand barriers in our community. There are plenty of barriers in our church. And breaking them down is really hard. But if we are faithful in this, man, you know, the truth is, if we're faithful in this, it's going to be awkward. <laughs> if we're faithful in this, you are going to find that you are, are putting your foot in your mouth, that you are getting offended, you are offending other people. Man, I can, just thinking about this today, I was thinking about all these different embarrassing things that I've done over the course of my ministry, trying to, to, to reach across cultural divides. I, I was reminded of um, in Dorchester, when we were finally starting to see kind of this vision of, of, of uh, reflecting our neighborhood take place in the previous church where I pastored, we were baptizing uh, children um, from one of the first Asian families that had joined the church. And our music director got confused. <laughs> and instead of playing, uh, what do we play, Jesus Loves Me at the baptism, he accidentally started to play Jesus Loves the Little Children. And you're like, okay, uh, fine, Jesus, a similar theme. Until like halfway into the song, we realized that we are all headed for what is a kind of racist chorus. Red and yellow, black and white, they're precious in his sight. And we're like, oh no. <laughs> we mumbled our way through it. We turned beet red. Stuff like that happens. That's what it looks like. It's not so beautiful. <laughs> it's hard. It's, it's awkward. If we want to pursue this vision, the truth is we're going to screw up. And sometimes we're going to butt heads. But here is our hope. Christ is our peace. There are a thousand barriers in this community, but what if there were none in the church? What if this were the one place where all the barriers between God and all the barriers between men have been abolished? What if this were the one place where people from every corner of Jamaica Plain and Roxbury could come and worship the Father in one spirit. Well, Paul says it is. Paul says that is exactly what the church is. And just as Christ crossed all of time and eternity to preach peace to us when we were far off, just as He spared nothing and gave His very life to give us peace with God, now we are called to do the same. We are called to cross the barriers of, of race and class and economics to announce the good news that Christ has broken down the dividing walls. And He is uniting all things in Him, all things in heaven, and all things on earth. Let's pray that that might be true for us. Father, we are grateful for Your Word and the promises that just seem too glorious. They seem too overwhelming. The odds 
seem too great, but Lord, I know that if you can save sinners like us, you can definitely do this. You can help us reach our neighbors. You can help our church to love this city. Father, I pray for anyone who may come here today that doesn't know you at all. And I pray, Lord, that they would hear that great message that that the way to peace with you is not through a policy or a procedure or a plan, but is through the one person, Jesus, who has removed all the hostility from you. And Lord, I pray that as we reflect on that message, that we would remember that that message is not only for us Christians, but it is for the world. And we are meant to share it. Lord, would you get us out of our comfort and lead us into the streets. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.